Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Coulson. In this episode, we go deep into the Chinese Communist Party's 19th Party Congress and what the outcomes mean for the politics of China's party army state. Few organizations in the world are as opaque and secretive as the Chinese Communist Party. Yet every five years, Chinese citizens and the world watch to see who will emerge from behind the curtain to serve as the party's core leadership on the Politburo Standing Committee. During this party congress, General Secretary, President, and Chairman Xi Jinping once again demonstrated his firm grasp on the levers of power through personnel appointments. Moreover, Xi Jinping thought will now be enshrined in the party constitution moving forward. Joining us on the pod to analyze what the outcomes of the 19th Party Congress mean for China's political economy, PLA leadership, information control, and foreign policy are Christopher Johnson, chair of the CSIS Freeman Chair in China Studies, and Dr. Oriana Schuyler-Mastro, assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. My colleague Jeffrey Bean, editor of the CSIS Asia policy blog Kajit Asia, recently caught up with Oriana and Chris. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean. I'm editor of the CSIS Asia Policy Blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Uh, joining me to talk about China's 19th Party Congress today, we're very pleased to have Dr. Oriana Mastro of Georgetown University, an assistant professor with the Security Studies Program. Uh, also, Christopher Johnson, Freeman Chair in China Studies and senior advisor here at CSIS. Chris, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. And Oriana, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the 19th Party Congress recently wrapped up. Uh, we now know the membership of the new Politburo Standing Committee, we know the Central Committee members, and we know that Xi got his name up in lights in the party constitution in a way that his predecessors, Hu Jintao and uh, Zhang Zemin, did not. For each of you, what is the top line takeaway following this apparent clean sweep of the 19 party Congress by Xi? Why don't we start with you, Oriana? So my top takeaway as a military and security specialist is that China has definitely doubled down on this course of action in which the military is playing a greater and greater role in their foreign policy. So in the beginning of Xi's tenure, uh, it seemed like for the first time that international affairs was going to be a big part of his portfolio and his focus, unlike a lot of his predecessors. When he first came uh, onto the stage, he made comments about how his tenure was going to be defined by things like the China dream, which had a very uh, clear military focus. The strong military is a big part of that dream. And people were kind of shocked by that because China wasn't really so open about talking about military modernization and how a modern military would play such a great role in China. Uh, and so this was early on kind of signs that she was giving. And throughout the past couple of years, we've seen increased Chinese assertiveness in territorial disputes, which has included a greater role for the Chinese military, uh, more military operations in contested areas, and China consolidating its current claims and pushing its position in the future. So when we get to the 19th Party Congress, um, a lot of the statements that she made, uh, he didn't make anything specifically about foreign policy issues, but he made such clear statements about how, yes, again, the strong military absolutely lies at the heart of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And he wasn't uh, shy about that type of aspect at all. So I think when we saw um, what happened in terms of the restructuring, which I'm sure we'll touch uh, upon later, uh, is this idea that China is moving forward with the largest scale reforms that the Chinese military has ever seen. And there seems to be a degree uh, in, of confidence that China can succeed in those reforms. And at least in Xi Jinping's remarks about 
how they have to get rid of poisonous weeds and pushing forward on the anti-corruption campaign, a view that in any area that he's not confident the military is going to kind of toe the party line, that he's made it very clear at this party Congress with multiple statements that the military absolutely number one thing, number one must is loyalty to the party. So whatever individuals are not on board with modernizing to become a um, mechanized and informationalized military by um, in the next few years, and then one capable of basic national defense in 2035, and then a world-class fighting force by 2050, those individuals are going to have to go in the next couple years. Uh, I, I think in terms of top lines, I would I would draw a distinction between the political top lines and, and some of the policy top lines. Uh, I think really the top lines for uh, politics are the two goals that Xi Jinping really had going into the party congress. Uh, the first was to get his name in the constitution um, with some sort of theoretical contribution. I think this was really always the goal. And uh, part and parcel of that, I think, is uh, Xi Jinping's sort of thinking as a traditional Chinese leader, uh, so-called Hong Ardai, second generation red. Um, this is a guy who understands that if you have your thinking canonized in this way, especially in an eponymous fashion by name in the Constitution, basically it doesn't matter what formal titles you hold. You are what's called the ideological arbiter. You know, I'm, I'm now referring to Xi Jinping as the untenured ideological arbiter uh, of the system. And I think that's uh, very compelling because A, untenured, it means he can be around for a long time, whether in the front lines or in the second lines, ruling from behind the screen. Um, and B, ideological arbiter, which means that if you disagree with Xi Jinping, you're not just disagreeing with uh, him as a person. You're not just disagreeing with a position of party secretary. You're disagreeing with the party's line. And that's a very dangerous game inside the Chinese political system. And then again, as a student of that system, I think he understands concepts like two-line struggle, uh, would not be afraid to use them um, to go after people. You know, the fall of Sun Zhuntai has some of this flavor um, from Chongqing, where he was sort of, again, mysteriously referred to as somehow undermining state power, and yet we don't really know, and presumably we'll get some more detail when he's formally prosecuted. The second major goal was to not signal the succession. Uh, and uh, I don't think that that should surprise anyone, although it seems to have surprised a lot of people. Um, I don't think this means necessarily that he intends to hold on to formal power forever. I think it's more that uh, designed to maximize his own position. Uh, he's got uh, some very challenging and difficult things he wants to do. And I think he realized from looking at history, whether it was Hu Jintao having Xi Jinping sort of himself um, moving up in the system, or it was Deng Xiaoping having to purge several predecessors, which distracted him from his agenda. You know, Xi Jinping has an agenda he wants to follow. On the policy side, I think probably the most interesting innovation, at least from the speech, is the creation of this new midpoint target of 2035. Effectively, Xi Jinping has been saying through his first five years, we have these two centenary goals, the 100th anniversary of the party in 2021, 100th anniversary of the PRC in 2049. I'm now creating a new uh, a new goal myself. And it's within my lifetime, of course, which is interesting. And also, it's this idea of we're in a new era. And he needs to be able to sort of justify why we're in a new era. And the other interesting undertone of the 2035 target is that it suggests that everything the party is a very sort of Marxist and Leninist feel to it. Everything they're doing has momentum. It's accelerating. There's speed to everything they're doing. And it sounds really good. So, Chris, in his work report to the Party Congress, General Secretary Xi seemed to de-emphasize specific long-standing growth targets. Uh, for example, doubling the size of the economy by 2021. This was not mentioned. Does this mean the party will now focus on combating the extensive debt 
that exists in the system, which has previously been a political no-go zone? Uh, and how will the decisions taken during this party Congress shape future macroeconomic planning in your view? I think uh, we're going to have to wait some time to see about the latter question of macroeconomic planning. But I think it's very significant that he chose not to uh, not to mention these growth targets. Um, and it's quite striking, actually. You, you almost get the sense from the way the government has handled it after the party congress uh, that they were concerned, in fact, that the international observer community commentariat was so focused on the changes in the leadership that they missed what wasn't said. So you know, suddenly they had a sort of hastily called press conference where a sort of key individual from the the uh, party's uh, financial and economic leading group was brought out to say, hey, everyone, you know, we didn't include it. And that was purposeful. And it relates to the change in the so-called primary contradiction um, that they've also made away from, you know, in a bumper sticker format, Dung's formulation of growth at all costs to there has to be balanced growth, there has to be sustainable growth, environmental, you know, food safety, all these issues that are um, the issues that um, perplex a rising middle class. And the party wants to demonstrate that it's uh, on board with that. I also think politically it, it gives a lot of flexibility to Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, again, as I was mentioning, with this target of 2035, the beauty of it is it makes it sound like they're moving very quickly, that they're kind of ahead of schedule, and yet there are no specific targets they have to meet between now and then. So it gives themselves a lot of uh, flexibility. I also think the absence of the targets in his speech tell us that the messages from people like Lioja, his sort of chief right-hand man on the economy who's been promoted to the Politburo, which I think is very significant, um, the message they've had, which is, okay, boss, we put the politics aside, uh, the economics aside while you've dealt with the politics in the last five years. We can't go on like this anymore, or indeed we will blow up. And so to your point about tackling debt and so on, I expect that this tells us that in the springtime, probably when the second half of the leadership reshuffle is finished and we have new people in the official government posts, we're going to see a pretty serious uh, deleveraging effort. I think it's going to be targeted uh, outside of the financial sector, which is what we've seen up until now, at SOEs, state-owned enterprises, at local governments. Um, and the goal will be both to sort of get everything that's currently not transparent. So all of these, you know, sort of uh, shadow banking activities that are off the books onto the books. So bring everything that's not in the daylight into the daylight. That's step one. And then step two, which will be the much harder part, is actual deleveraging, you know, bringing the debt of these uh, um, institutions, in the case of state-owned enterprises or the local governments down. That's going to be a much more difficult task, frankly. Um, and, you know, the history is not that great there. You know, the reality is typically when they get to the precipice and they're looking over and they have to start thinking about things like severely reduced growth, um, they go back to the old playbook, which is to pump money into the system and so on. I do think um, Xi Jinping is more of a risk taker, uh, both internationally and domestically. Um, and so therefore, there may be more uh, more iron in the gut um, to, to take on these challenges. But uh, that'll be a key thing to watch. Now I want to turn to the PLA. Uh, Oriana, one of the decisions that seems to have flown a little bit under the radar is she's moved to downsize the Party Central Military Commission. Uh, in addition to the expected changing of personnel, the commission dropped from 11 members down to seven. How does this affect the management of the PLA? And what do you think is the fit between the CMC and the relatively new National Security Commission uh, in terms of the implications for security and foreign policy planning implementation? 
So my sense is what's important is not so much that now we have uh, fewer men with the same haircuts on the Central Military Commission, but more who made the cut, right? So on the 11 person, I would have described the previous CMC as kind of a peacetime advisory role, right? They would uh, discuss and formulate, you know, military regulations and guidelines and also how to pair economic, political, and military means to accomplish China's goal. What we've seen with this downgrade grading is more of what would be like a wartime command center, right? So during the previous session, you had um, the service chiefs were also on the Central Military Commission, as well as um, the Minister of Defense, which is kind of known to be like a signatory head. One of the big things about the new leaner, meaner CMC is that the service chiefs no longer have a seat at the table. This seems to go hand in hand with a lot of the military reforms that are emphasizing joint operations. So historically, one of the biggest weaknesses of the Chinese military has been its ability to operate jointly. And this is for you know the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, the, what used to be the Second Artillery, now the Strategic Rocket Force, to conduct combat operations together. Um, and there were structural reasons why this was so difficult. Uh, it had to do a lot with not only how command was set up before they had military regions that divided the Chinese uh, country up into different areas versus trying to think about uh, operations outside of Chinese borders. So these reforms took place, and part of those reforms was to improve um, equality among the services. So the army always dominated. And this uh, is very problematic when you think about the majority of contingencies China is planning for. They are not land-based contingencies, right? So if you had previously uh, who was going to be in charge of the Taiwan plan, that was going to be an army guy. Who's going to be in charge of the South China Sea, that's going to be an army guy. And so uh, this also led to a lot of tension between the services, and they had a lot of problems moving towards that goal of joint operations. So bringing us back to the current seven-member uh, CMC, you see that the, not only do you have fewer people, but the members that were chosen are, have a broader background. It's not as army-dominated as it has been in the past. And so for the vice chairman, um, you have one individual who has a background in air, Xu Qingliang. I remember writing a whole piece the first time an Air Force guy became vice chairman. It was There was a debate about one individual who was vice chairman for like a hot second during the Cultural Revolution, whether or not he counted. But besides him, it was a big deal that all of a sudden, for the first time, you had an Air Force individual. Now, you, you continue to have that as a, as a vice chairman. Um, and the second vice chairman is also Army. But then you get to the other four members. Um, General Wei Fenghe was a second artillery commander, so has a different type of background. Um, you have General Li Zuocheng, who um, had a, an Army background as well. Um, but the third individual, Miao Hua, has a Navy background, and the fourth also had an Army. So we have a much broader type of backgrounds of these individuals. One thing that has also come up in their backgrounds uh, is there's been an emphasis internally on the fact that at least two, if not four of the individuals, because um, there has been some reporting that also the vice chairman, have combat experience in the Vietnam War. And this is very interesting because this this is a conflict. Um, it did not go well for China in 1979. It's the last war China fought. Uh, yeah, against Vietnam. And so uh, it usually isn't brought up a lot, but in a lot of the reporting of these individuals, it's highlighted that they were war heroes of this era. So it suggests maybe that Xi Jinping really does value modernization efforts towards joint operations, towards real combat experience, preparing for military struggle. And like he said, um, you know, at the 19th Party Congress event, and Xi Jinping thought, 
the party's goal of building a strong military in into the new era, right? These are key things. But it doesn't end there because at least two of the, the four members are known to kind of be Xi loyalists. And so there's a lot of de- debate about is it the case that these individuals are put on the Central Military Commission because you know they are professionals, they have combat experience, they are the future of the military, and they're going to pave the way for reforms? Or is it just that they didn't have close ties with some of the previous generals who are currently under investigation or, um, or you know, Jiang Zemin before that? So she seems like he's going to have to make a decision about what's more important. You know, right now his speeches say, you know, the— the military has these four musts. When he made a speech right after the party congress to the military, he highlighted that the Chinese military has to do six things. Sorry, six musts. The first one, of course, is loyalty to the party and listening to party commands. The second is being excellent fighters and winning battles. And the third is, you know, to engage in reform. And anyone who studies military organizations can tell you reform is difficult and uh, combat readiness is difficult. And there's going to be trade-offs between this emphasis on party control and loyalty um, with that type of combat effectiveness. Uh, one sort of small example on the operational CMC is if, if all decisions require this, this, this body to be making decisions in combat – you're going to see a very slow and ineffective decision-making process uh, within the Chinese military, which will be good maybe for allies and partners of the United States and smaller countries in the region, but bad from the Chinese military perspective. And any thoughts on on where the NSC is at at this point? Or should we wait until the state jobs sort of become appointed in the spring to have a better idea? Or has that just been killed off? So my understanding is, you know, when the NSC was first established, there was a lot of hubbub about whether or not it was a similar type of streamlining that the United States has with the NSC. Maybe this would mean that, you know, Xi Jinping would get quicker and better sources and more reliable sources of information that would affect decision making. But in practice, it doesn't really seem to be such a game changer in terms of of how things are done. The system still seems extremely stovepiped, extremely opaque. um, And uh, they're at least, you know, taking what Chris has said and others about the role of Xi Jinping no longer just kind of being the first among equals, but democratic consensus seems to be kind of dying within this system. It doesn't seem like those types of you know, pseudo like ad hoc institutional frameworks are going to make much difference in a time of conflict. I want to get into some of the other impacts for the PLA as well as China's foreign policy uh, of Xi's implicit suggestion through omission uh, that China's previous foreign policy directive from Deng Xiaoping, the well-known hiding capabilities and biding time, uh, that this directive is no longer needed in this new era of China's power. Does this help in Xi's goal to shape the PLA into the modern world-class fighting force that they're uh, that they're aiming for? Oriana, we'll start with you, and then move to Chris. So I think it's interesting, at least in my reading. Uh, it's my understanding that Xi Jinping has never actually used the term, you know, hiding your capabilities and binding your time in any public speech. But at the 19th Party Congress, we know that he mentioned or described China as a great or strong uh, country like 26 times, right? So he's very comfortable with uh, promoting the idea of a strong China in terms of having a strong Chinese military. I would say that when I look at debates within China, it's not so much that that's no longer relevant, but there is there was actually a second part of that phrase, of that dung phrase, which was, you know, when the time is ready, you strive for achievement. And about three years ago, there was an internal debate that I was following very closely in which some individuals said, maybe the time to strive for achievement is now. And 
that debate that debate went on for a little bit, but my understanding of you know Xi's position and especially the consolidation of Xi Jinping thought at this party congress is that debate is over, right? We are definitely moved beyond the point where China has to lay low, not take any leadership positions, and we are definitely in this new era in which they're striving for achievement. They're thinking of creative and new ways that China can play a role on the international stage and creative new and better ways to accumulate and exercise Chinese power and influence. Yeah, I, I largely agree. I, I think the interesting element is that, you know, part of this is it's been a journey that they've been on since the Deng Xiaoping period. I mean, you know, if you think about the context in which Deng's famous phrase was uttered, the Soviet Union had just collapsed. Uh, communism in Eastern Europe had failed. Uh, they were worried about, they had just successfully defended themselves in the Tiananmen crackdown, but they were worried. Um, and uh, it wasn't at all clear, frankly, that they were going to be able to survive that that tide. And so uh, the idea that uh, we need to, you know, zero in on what we're doing here, you know, very defensive sort of point of view, I think was appropriate. Even in the Hu Jintao period, this debate was happening a lot. Um, they did, in fact, he made a, his own sort of slight departure by adding this, you know, GG, you know, we, we, we will, you know, keep a low profile, but do things more actively. That was sort of his add-on. Um, I completely agree with Oriana, though. My view is, in fact, I'm not surprised, you know, it didn't take the Party Congress speech. That I see is actually a codification of his remarks to the so-called Foreign Affairs Work Conference in 2014, where he really at that time laid out that Tao Gong Yanghui, Deng's longstanding phrase, was dead. Um, and that, in effect, the bumper sticker is, we already are a superpower, we should start acting like one. Um, and, you know, I think this is a very natural sort of transition. I don't think we should see this as a trap that they're laying for themselves necessarily. And then I think the, the most important part in all of this is, you know, not so much a focus on, you know, is China being more assertive in the wake of the 19th Party Congress? It's what are we doing to create a counter-narrative um, to China's system? You know, in the in the absence of a functioning counter-narrative that looks at foreign policy, economics, diplomacy, the whole range of activities, military, um, you know, that's pointing out the warts in the other guy's system, if you will. This is something the U.S. did very effectively during the Cold War. Um, then suddenly that narrative starts to look a lot more palpable. And, and so the the risk, I think, is that China begins to gain energy on this and it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy um, without ever having to actually do any real work. Um, and that's something that um, we have to watch very closely, I think. Turning to the issue of the corruption campaign or anti-corruption campaign, so the Party Central Commission for Discipline Inspection has a new head in Zhao Leiji, but the anti-corruption focus appears to remain. Should we expect any big dominoes to fall now that she has exhaustively consolidated power? Do you think that the PLA will come under even more scrutiny? And also, my personal hobby horse, will the aging yet still reportedly capable Wang Qishan get another job? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Jalaji's appointment is interesting. There was a general consensus, I think, before the Party Congress that probably Li Jianchu, Xi Jinping's sort of right-hand man, chief of staff, might uh, go into that position. And uh, instead, it now looks like he's he's going elsewhere, which makes you wonder. And if you look at Jalaji's sort of background, he's a pretty gray, apparatchik-looking kind of guy, spent most of his time in, you know, a very small number of provinces. Um, he himself had a situation where his own personal secretary um, was 
is brought down on corruption charges. And, you know, historically inside their system, the person in, the personal secretary often acts as the bag man for the leader in terms of collecting funds and so on. So it's hard for us to believe that Zhao Liji didn't at least know what his, uh, his uh, Mishu was up to. And so that makes things um, very complicated in terms of what it means for having him as CDIC secretary. I think really what we have to watch then is we know they're going to create this new National Supervision Commission in the spring. Um, does Zhao Liji get dual-hatted as the person in charge of that institution, or will it be Li Jianshu, uh, you know, over at the National People's Congress, or someone else? Uh, you know, that's a very interesting thing to watch. It's it's unclear to me the degree to which maybe the CDIC may now be de-emphasized in the same way that after the collapse of Zhou Yongkang, we saw the de-emphasis uh, on the party's politics, political science, and law commission. It was bucked down, you know, in terms of its authority. So I think we have to watch that very closely. Um, Wang Qishan is going to be around, uh, I think. Um, he's making that clear uh, both through commentary, uh, public commentary, and through interactions privately with, you know, key foreign individuals. There's a lot of speculation. They might make him the vice president. Uh, it's an interesting idea in that you don't have to even be a party member to hold that post. So the fact that he's not uh, on the central committee is, is is not relevant. And I think it could be very useful to have him in what I call sort of a an international constituent whisperer role, which is basically to go to people who he historically has had good connections with, people in the finance sector internationally, um, high-level government officials, both current and retired, and act as sort of a reassurance factor, you know, stability. I'm still around. Yes, we didn't signal the succession. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about reform. Guys you know and trust, like myself, are still around and we're playing a role. And um, it will be very interesting as well to see sort of, you know, if he is in that capacity, what additional titles might he collect, if any? Um, and is he in some sort of advisory role to this new National Supervision Commission? I think the thing that we can be most sure of is that Wang Qishan is not going to, you know, their equivalent of Florida um, anytime soon. Oriana, on the, the PLA anti-corruption uh, efforts, do you expect uh, any renewed emphasis or just for a steady state more of the same? So I think from the PLA's perspective, steady state more of the same is kind of bad enough. And I think that's what we're going to be seeing. Um, this anti-corruption campaign uh, within the PLA has been the largest um, house cleaning of the PLA since the 1980s. We've had over 60 PLA generals have been under investigation or fired. And if you look at going back to the topic of the CMC, two of the members on the CMC, while the service chiefs are off, two individuals that are on, what their titles and what their roles are tell you that this anti-corruption campaign is moving forward. So first, Adam, Admiral uh, Miao Hua, who uh, is now the head of the political work department, and Lieutenant General Zhang Xiangmin, who's the deputy secretary of the Central Committee for Discipline and Inspection. So of the four people that she could choose to be members of the smaller CMC. Two of them seem to be primarily focused on ensuring, you know, the right political ideological attitude of the of the military and loyalty to the party, and also uh, to be in charge of these anti-corruption efforts. I think it's also notable that in the lead up to the 19th Party Congress, two former members of the CMC were both brought under investigation. So General Fang Fenghui and General uh, Zhang Yang, they uh, both sort of quietly and disappeared into the night. And there's a lot of speculation. Their names didn't come out as, you know, being invited to the 19th Party Congress. So people kind of assumed that their careers were over, and they are. And both are, are said to be under investigation. Now, the big question, though, is what drives these types of investigations? There was some speculation that these two individuals 
you know, everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but there's a lot of corruption, systemic corruption in the PLA. So why were these two individuals brought under investigation at this time? There's some speculation that because they weren't at retirement age, Xi Jinping would not be able to get them off the CMC uh, as easily as all the other individuals, all the other former members who just retired. Um, and so if he's using this anti-corruption efforts, now, I, I granted, he's probably doing both, right, ensuring professionalism and consolidating his power. But if the PLA starts seeing it as just an effort to get rid of certain individuals that are inconvenient for him, and not so much an effort to ensure combat readiness of the military, then you might see sort of broader dissatisfaction at all levels of the PLA with the anti-corruption efforts. Just to add another point on that uh, as a framing point, I think, you know, it's whether it's in the military or on the party side, uh, this is now um, going to be around for, for a long time. I mean, you know, this is a critical component of Xi Jinping's what I call political shock and awe that he's been, you know, sort of um, uh, going after since the minute he arrived. And it's fundamental to his uh, sort of um, approach to life uh, in politics. And so, you know, one of the ways I think he did it so effectively in both the party and the military was basically to break the back of the political power of these alternative rival power centers, whether it was individual interest groups on the party side or the military, you know, something that's striking is that, you know, the PLA obviously has always had a military role and a political role. And I think it's fair to say that he's really um, broken the back of that political role. And that's a huge development. During his three and a half hour address, uh, she at one point sounded like he's somebody who runs a website or a newspaper and pledged uh, there would be better internet content, there'd be more internet content, and that uh, it would be easier to access through a cleaner cyberspace. But he also very clearly made the point that uh, this content was going to resist various erroneous views. Uh, how does this potential further tightening of censorship affect Western companies who are trying to invest or operate in China, in your view, Chris? I, I think it's, uh, you know, really, um, as they would say, the primary contradiction um, in, in what they're trying to do. You know, how do you have an innovative society um, that also um, is very focused on information control? Um, and, you know, in the same way that they're suggesting that on the economic side of the house, they found some third way between socialism and capitalism, I think they're trying to suggest to us they found a third way um, here. You know, one thing that's striking is, though, the, the vast misjudgment by, I think, most people outside of China that the internet was going to make this fundamental change in terms of internal information control. The Chinese have disproven that. I think that's fair to say. Um, obviously, one of the key points is when you control the pipe, um, that gives you tremendous uh, ability to shape um, what is and isn't out there. But then I think that's also just the size and scale of China as a market, as a country, as a population. And uh, I think there was a misjudgment with regard to what Chinese citizens might actually want. You know, when you look at it, and certainly when I go to China and speak to Chinese of all different generational cohorts, they like simplicity. They like efficiency, just like Americans do. They want to be able to do a lot of things from their phone. And if that means that they can't use Google and they have to use Baidu to search instead, they're going to do that. And if their WeChat platform allows them to buy airplane tickets and uh, you know everything else all at once when Facebook can't do that, um, then they're fine with that. And there's a pre there's also you know a, a presumption, I think, among Chinese that the government's looking at all this anyway. So you know if they're doing that, I might as well you know sort of have these conveniences. And also uh, I think the main difference is they don't have the privacy concern issue that we do in the West. It's just not something that exists in China. And so for all these reasons, the party has has really been quite effective at this. And I think what's striking is 
one of the key ways they got, if you will, back on top of the pile in terms of information um, inside their system was that they stopped trying to just control information. Um, I think that the, the holes in that sort of um, approach became very clear as things like the internet uh, took hold. And they started moving toward what I call information shaping. In other words, they want to create the narrative before there even is a narrative. And then they're very effective at pushing it out across all of these platforms, social media, the broadcast media, you know, so on and so on. And it's working. If, oh, sorry. If I can just add, you know, on academic freedom, which is kind of like a less, it's not quite as sexy as a topic, but just to add some highlights about what has actually been happening in China. So the first thing, moving a little bit away from the high tech side, is just to emphasize that this control is a part of a much broader tightening of information control in China. And in particular, in the academic realm, a restriction of access to outside information and Western information and Western scholarship. So when Xi Jinping came into power, for example, he shut down the Foreign Ministry Archives, a place where I used to do research and now no one is allowed uh, to enter. Uh, he uh, put forth some rules and regulations about syllabi and how, what percentage uh, of of textbooks, of books could be outside Western sources and, and how much actually had to be domestic sources. And he's put huge controls, for example, on universities and the degree to which they can invite outside scholars. And so that's been a big issue. It's it's also the normal, boring, off-the-internet exchanging of information ideas that's been a problem. And then you add in the internet component, it's not only that they're um, – controlling kind of information. They are shaping the system in ways that affects everyone. So there was a somewhat controversial situation which Cambridge University Press had agreed to censor certain articles and what is considered to be one of uh, sort of the journals at the forefront of comparative politics in China, China Quarterly. In addition, they were going to censor their own book lists. Now, Cambridge reversed that decision, but I just recently this week heard of other publishing companies that are going that same route in which they have been pressured or positively induced or whatever it is by China to restrict the ability of uh, certain academics outside of China to express their academic views and to disseminate their scholarship. And so when you say academic freedom, I think most people think just, you know, does someone have the ability to voice their opinion in the classroom? But now with the Internet, it's becoming much broader than that. If uh, we can no longer use VPNs, for example, which is a lot of ways that foreign scholars get access to information when we're in China, or that our students might get access to information if they're studying abroad in China, if they can no longer access this type of information, if scholars are blacklisted, can't travel to China, and now their research won't be published because publishers won't even disseminate it because of the Chinese market, you know, we're looking at a way that China is really shaping or trying to shape the Western um, field of, of scholarship and international relations and comparative politics. Worrying, we'll have to keep a, a close eye on all the developments you guys discussed. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Oriana, thank you so much for, for sitting down with us for the pod. That's our show. Thanks to Chris Johnson for returning to the pod to share his analysis of Chinese elite politics. Also, a very special thanks Dr. Oriana Schuyler-Mastro for taking the time to share her insights into the PLA leadership and political dynamics in China. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemelingsari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit kajadasia.com and csis.org. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org.
Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature on the competing visions for connecting Eurasia. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on China's maritime militia with Andrew Erickson. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.